0: So let's continue this theme of of wine. Um, Many years ago, I went to university. It was actually a a poly back in those days. And and I studied, of all subjects, hotel management. And um, strange how I ended up being a vicar. But some people have said that there are some similarities. Uh, Rubbish hours, poor pay, and difficult customers. Now, (laughs) it's not what I've experienced here. Anyway, one of the subjects that I studied, I can't believe they made a degree out of it, Uh, I didn't know what else to do, Um, was gastronomy. And it's all about good food and good wine. And given that it's all about food and wine, it obviously uh, couldn't be theoretical, it had to be quite practical. And so one evening lecture that I had um, was um, a wine tasting of fine wines. Now, I'd been brought up in a a teetotal house, Uh, at least that's what my dad said, and, uh, and, and my, my experience of, of alcohol was snakebite in the local park, so, so a wine tasting, some of you know what that's like, um, much better drunk through a straw, uh, a wine tasting was a novelty for me, uh, but on my course, for some reason, there were lots of really quite posh people, and I know I'm posh, but I wasn't as posh as this lot. And, um, and I, I, don't, I still, I think the reason was, so I went to what was called Oxford Poly, all right? And, um, uh, and my mum was very proud of that because she said I went to Oxford. But then I think that there were lots of posh people on my course, and I, I think a lot of them have probably been to public uh, school and boarded there. And, um, and their mums and dads wanted them to go to Oxford or Cambridge, but at the end of the day, they were a bit, bit thick. And... Uh, <laughs> So they got to do hotel management at Oxford Poly, and then their mums and dads could say, oh, my son is at Oxford, or whatever. So that, that's my theory. I don't know if, it will, if it's true or not, but it certainly seemed to be the case for me. Anyway, but th- this lot, who were quite posh, they seemed to know an awful lot about fine wines, but I really had no clue. We had to taste eight different glasses of wine, red, white, dessert wine, all that kind of stuff. And, and I'd never been to one of these things before, and I just thought, well, if you're wine tasting, it kind of makes sense to drink as much of it as possible, doesn't it? <laughs> so that, that's what I did, and all of my posh friends around me, they were kind of—they swirling their glasses, they were talking about legs, and they were talking about bouquet. They were gargling and then spitting it out. And I thought, that's a terrible waste, can't be doing that. And so I, I basically polished off <laughs> eight, eight very full glasses of fine wine. And when I stood up, um, I nearly (laughs) fell over because I I realized, it's never happened since, uh, just how sozzled I was. And I kind of um, staggered out of this classroom. Now, now the irony of all this was that that night, I was the volunteer team leader um, for a night shelter for homeless young adults. If any of you know Oxford, it's down in St. Clements. And basically, what it entailed was... um, I then had to lead this team of volunteers and I'd go down to this church and this basement had been converted into a night shelter with about uh, 12 bunks in it. And, and what happened was, was that i go down, i I then check in all of the young people who were looking for a bed for the night. I think it was November, so it's quite cold. And then I'd cook them dinner and, um, and then we'd all sleep, boys and girls, all in this same room. I think the days of safeguarding and risk assessment hadn't really uh, reached us in any shape or form. So you can imagine uh, what these homeless young people thought as I staggered to unlock the front door and, and smelt and rank of booze. Basically I was drunk as a skunk. And um, it, it wasn't really my finest hour. Um, I can't believe I'm telling you that actually that happened. But the, but the next month wasn't a wine tasting, it was a whiskey tasting. <laughs> um, and I, Anna can tell you that story. now. Our reading today is all about fine wine, and uh, we're thinking about the gifts of Jesus in John's Gospel, and the gift that we look at today is fine wine. So should we uh, pray as we come to look at this text together? Father, we thank you uh, for the scriptures. We thank you that they lead us to Jesus, and we pray that today we might be led to him afresh, that he might come to us afresh by his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, everyone loves a wedding, don't they? Unless you're the father of the bride, and it's very traditional, and you're thinking, how much? How much? Keith LeShemon, is he here? <laughs> so ne- next Saturday, uh, Joel, uh, Henry, and, uh, and Beth LeShemon getting married, which will be lovely. And um, I hope you, you're saving up, Keith. Are you, are you not, is it not a traditional way of doing things? Not so much the way. Good, uh, that's all right. <laughs> You work that one out, okay? Um, so everyone loves a wedding, and and what we find in John chapter two is a wedding is taking place in Cana, which is west of Galilee, just down the road from Nazareth, which is kind of where Jesus started his ministry, and and a wedding in the ancient Near East at that time in that place basically lasted for days. Can you imagine that? And uh, and everyone. Uh, from the town where the wedding was taking place and from the surrounding towns would kind of pitch up, uninvi- uh, you know, invited or not, I think they would do. Uh, but um, like weddings today, everything had to be just so. Got to get it right. And uh, certain standards were needed to be met and there were expectations to be fulfilled. And, and if things went wrong at a wedding, uh, then... The guests, you know, for whatever reason, they weren't treated in the right kind of way. It it would end up with embarrassment and shame and disgrace upon the whole family who would throw in the wedding. You know, if things went wrong, it could be a social disaster. It would be remembered for all the wrong reasons for years to come. And actually, it would be seen as bringing bad luck upon that couple who were getting married. And so at this wedding um, at Cana in Galilee that we find in John chapter 2, something did go wrong. Verse 3, if you look at it, the text is on the back of your notice sheet. It says, when the wine was gone, the wine had dried up and the guests had nothing to drink. And uh, that was a potential disaster for uh, the, the, the wedding family. Now at that point in the story, no one knew except a few people that the wine had dried up. The servants knew, and some of the guests. Now, thankfully, some of the guests who knew that the wine had dried up knew that there was an extra special guest there at the wedding, Jesus, the Son of God. Um, Though at that point, no one knew that Jesus was special. No one knew that he was uh, the Son of God, that actually he was extraordinary. But one person did know, and that was his mother, because obviously, if you think back uh, to his birth, and I think throughout his life, she would have known there was something very different about her son, Jesus. And so she turns um, to Jesus, and you'll see that um, in verse, um, verse three. And she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Uh, and it's kind of a, a text. It's basically what she's saying. In other words, what is it, Jesus, that you're going to do about this potentially disastrous situation. And Jesus' response to his mother, always uh, I find quite funny uh, in a way, is quite rude, he's quite curt, because he turns around to her and says, woman, why do you involve me? And, and actually he doesn't say, oh, dearest mother, or whatever it might be. He, he kind of uh, gives her a bit of a hard time. He says, my time has not yet come. But what does he mean by that, my time has not yet come? Well, basically, uh, that wasn't the time For Jesus to be fully revealed for who he truly is. As as the Apostle Paul talks about, the fullness of the deity in bodily form, or as John talks about in his opening prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It wasn't time for him to be revealed for who he truly was. And in fact, what you find if you go through John's gospel in John 12, um, it, it talks there about jesus revealing his glory revealing who he truly is when he is lifted up when is he lifted up Well, he's lifted up upon a cross that is when he is revealed as the son of god anyway mary as we see here is not prepared to take no for an answer from her son and she then turns to the servants and she says this do whatever he tells you do whatever he tells you is always good advice And and remember, the answer is always yes. When he tells you what to do, the answer is always yes. And and secretly, because his time has not yet come, Jesus tells his servants that his mother has spoken to that they are to fill some water jars. And, And we discover that when they fill these empty water jars with water, uh, it miraculously turns to the finest of wine. And as you go through, the wine overflows and disaster is averted. In the, in the first service, uh, someone then told me how many bottles of wine they thought that kind of was equal to. They obviously weren't listening to the rest of the sermon, sat there on their phone working it out. But um, basically, they said it would be about 800 bottles. Now, let's imagine 800 bottles... Um, at about £12 a shot, if it's good stuff. Is that good stuff? Um, I don't know, I'm looking at you, Sue. um, (laughs) uh, So it's about 10 grand's worth of wine uh, that suddenly pitches up there. And so the wine overflows, and everyone is happy. A miracle has taken place in Cana in Galilee. And then if you look, actually, in verse um, 11, it says there, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed His glory. This is the first miraculous sign that John writes about. Now, if you know anything about the Gospel writer John, then you'll know that he's got a thing about signs and about miracles. He speaks about them in clear terms on seven different occasions. And um, and this is the first sign. And basically, a sign is not an end in itself. This is not just some fancy magic trick. It points to something greater than itself. You know, a sign to London is not London. London is London, but a sign is something that points to it. And this miracle is obviously good news for the bride and the groom. It's good news for the master of the banquet who's making sure everything is taking place. Uh, But the miracle is not an end in itself. It's a sign of something more significant. And throughout John's Gospel, it's not straightforward. It's quite kind of mystical, and there's all kind of layers of meaning. And and there, there are layers of meaning in this particular story here in John chapter 2. It's a story about transformation, obviously of water into wine, but it's also about the story of transformation from disaster to success and celebration for that wedding uh, that was taking place. Also what we find it is, a, it is a point of transformation, a story of transformation from going from disbelief and maybe indifference to Jesus to faith and following him in John 11 it says at the end of that it says uh, after he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him did they not believe in him before well maybe not as much as they did after he'd performed this miraculous sign and and there's a sense in which this sign John I think is indicating that it points to something bigger than just water into wine it's actually all about heaven coming to earth those who saw this Miracle, Mary, the disciples, and those servants had their eyes open to another dimension. It's a bit like, you know, Narnia going through the wardrobe. You suddenly find yourself somewhere different and new and exciting and mysterious. It's what, and I've spoken about this before, what theologians call realized eschatology. It's about that which is in the future, the new heaven and the newer, spoken about in Old Testament prophecies, but also most particularly in Revelation 21. It's about that that is there coming here into our present reality. And sim- simply put, it's about the light of heaven being punched into our present darkness. It's about God bringing transformation in the midst of the ordinary something extraordinary takes place. Now if you go back in John's gospel to John uh, chapter one we find that Jesus is speaking to a chap called Nathaniel, and Nathaniel who's the one who said can anything good come out of Nazareth so he's already slagged Jesus off but he then still decides to follow him and, and in that text in John chapter one you find that, that, um, that Jesus is speaking to Nathaniel. And uh, he's telling Nathaniel about something that you find in the Old Testament in Genesis 28 called the uh, Jacob's Ladder. Some of you will be uh, familiar with that. It's basically an Old Testament story about uh, Jacob in he's asleep and, and he, he sees this picture of a ladder coming down to him. And it's about the presence of God coming down to Jacob on earth. And in this dream, Jacob sees a ladder being let down with angels ascending and descending. Ascending and descending. It's a bit like a heavenly escalator. And Jesus speaks about that in John chapter 1. And he he talks to to Nathanael about his heavenly escalator coming down to earth. And the implication is, uh, it's kind of poetic and mysterious all at the same time, is that Jesus, the son of God, is going to bring heaven down to earth. That, that transformation is going to be made possible by his presence. And, and in the first of this, uh, these miraculous signs, basically Jesus demonstrates his divinity. He kind of raises expectations as to what is possible when God is truly present, when heaven comes to earth. The um, the gloomy, rather gloomy Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this about the wedding at Cana. He said, "Jesus indeed did a great thing, turning water into wine. But he says, the church has performed a far greater miracle by taking the wine of the gospel and turning it into water." He's being ironic. He's basically saying we've dumbed down who God is. He says we've, we've contained God. We have low expectations of what is able to happen in the presence of God. You know, we're content maybe with emptiness, those empty jars, or we're content with water, and we don't always have the eyes of faith for the extraordinary, that fine wine. Kierkegaard, I think, suggests that in some ways we demystify, particularly in the West, the miracle of, of water into wine, and our expectation of who God is and what God is able to do. We can talk a good game, but we don't always see it. And I think there's a challenge in there uh, for me, for you maybe, uh, this story of Jesus' first miraculous sign. Um, the challenge is, 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 that, is our God too small? Have we demystified the gospel You know, are we up to that challenge of being transformed by the presence of God, by the Holy Spirit at work amongst us? You know, do we expect heaven to come to earth wherever God has placed us? In our family situations, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our churches? Do we have that level of expectation that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask for? or imagine is our God too small just looking again at this story going back to verse 2 uh, John writes on the third day and and basically he's he's meaning that literally and symbolically there's there's all kinds of layers of meanings with words with John and and basically um symbolically on the third day stands for it stands for resurrection the new creation brought about by the death and resurrection of christ and john by writing on the third day is indicating that god is doing a new thing in and through jesus and then we find that jesus takes six water jars 25 gallons each which is where you get the 800 bottles of wine and and these these jars are huge and they're empty They would have been used for Jewish purification rites. They were part of a religious system. And uh, the the gospel writer, John, I think, wants us to see that the old Jewish system is empty. It's devoid of truth and power and life. It's a system that is waiting for the Messiah, the Son of God. And, And it's here that Jesus, in some ways, takes that old system and brings new life to it. He turns water into wine he's not come to abolish the old system but he's actually come to fulfill it and bring life to it now jesus doesn't smash those jars but he brings transformation to them so that they overflow with life from him and i think there's a a message in here a challenge for the church the western church particularly the church of england of which we are a part Um, My dear friend David Bracewell was here recently and he wrote this not so long ago about the Church of England. He said there is barrenness in the institutional church. There's a lack of life, of vitality, of power and the poor old Church of England needs to be filled again with the Spirit of God. How true is that? Um, A couple of people sent me an article um, this last week that was in the Times and it's called Losing Faith. I don't know whether you saw it. Um, but i'll just read out some of it anglican catholic and methodist churches face potential extinction in britain within the next 40 years because their brand of christianity is just not contagious enough according to a mathematician who has calculated their r number do you remember the r number the whole covid thing and we wanted to see is the r number up or down and all that kind of stuff well he's used the same um, kind of formula to look at churches he says is uh, calculated the rate at which diseases such as COVID are spreading. A statistician has analysed data from 13 church denominations to assess the rate at which their membership is growing or declining. And he's predicted this. The Church of England and the Catholic churches across the UK have R numbers of just over 0.9. Um, that's not good, by the way. And they could see their congregations fall to zero by 2062. I've done the mask. by that time I would have retired and had most of my pension, so that's fine. Um, the, the Methodist church has an R number of about 0.85. It could face extinction by the mid-2040s. The church in Wales, any Welsh people here today, has an R number of just over 0.7 and could disappear by 2038. <laughs> by contrast, though, he says, evangelical and Pentecostal churches operating independently from the historic institutions are growing. He says the Eden Pentecostal Church, New Frontiers, and the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches both have R numbers between 1 and 1.1. And basically, they, because of that number, they have less chance of extinction. So my advice to you is is leave Trinity and, and go to Eldad, the rock, or new life. Um, there's some irony in that. Because according to that, those are the churches with a future. Um, Stemming losses is not enough, he said. We need to put all aside to encourage members to make new disciples who replicate themselves. Now, the Archbishop of York, Stephen Cottrell, his response was, it's helpful and challenging to see predictions like this. The Church of Christ, though, is not an organisation that lives or dies by graphs going up or down. But, but I would say, I, I don't think that that's going to come off, but I would say that the Church of England, at times, our God is too small. You know, I'm praying that God would bring transformation, not just to new churches, but also to an old system, and that we might overflow with resurrection life from him. But I think what is also true for churches can be true for us as well. You know, some of us have been on this journey of faith for a long time. We come to church, we believe in God, we say our prayers, we serve, we give, but truth be known, we feel like those empty jars. We're not full of anything except maybe disappointment and cynicism and indifference. It could be that we're running on empty. And I think as Jesus wants to come to his church, so he wants to come to you and to me to set our hearts on fire with love for him again I think that's what he wants and I think if that's what we want that's a good place to start and just to finish I think this story gives us some clues um, as to how we might be transformed by Jesus in verse three Mary says this she says they have no more wine so I think the first thing is is that we give an honest appraisal of where we're at if we're all dried up don't fake it if you're empty be honest before god drop the mask and pray as they do in the psalms god i'm empty i need you i think we first of all need to be attentive to ourselves and and i think that as we are attentive to ourselves as we speak honestly to ourselves and to God, I do think that it's in that quiet moment, as it were, that we can oftentimes discern that still, small voice saying to us what we need to do. And I think Mary, in verse 5, gives us good advice. Do whatever he tells you. And so I think to honesty, we add obedience if we want to be filled with the Spirit. And finally, we trust in his timing. Jesus, uh, in verse four, he says, my time has not yet come. And whilst actually at the end of the day he did do a miracle in secret, he doesn't reveal his true identity until the time was right and he he was hung from a cross. And I think we need to trust in him and in his timing. It means that we need to wait on Jesus because he is sovereign. You know, um, the, the psalmist wrote, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. But I don't know about you, I'm not very good at waiting. I want everything done now. We live in a quick fix culture, but we need to learn to wait. And what I would say that waiting period can be termed as is what you might call the difficult in between. It's the difference between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's Holy Saturday when all is still and quiet and you're not quite sure. What's going to happen? We need to wait in the middle, in the difficult in between. We uh, we hosted a meeting of the Deanery Synod here uh, last Wednesday. And if you're driving past, you would have seen um, the disco lights and the <laughs> drunk people outside. But there, there are about <coughs> 40 clergy and lay people. And we come from six, 16 churches across the bailiwick. Someone wants to define De- Deanery Synod, if you don't know this. As a crowd of Anglicans waiting to go home. <laughs> and we were. Um, but that's not the waiting we're talking about. We're not talking about a waiting of quiet desperation. But more so a waiting of quiet expectation that God will be faithful. And will he? Will he come? Well, I would say yes, speaking from my own experience. God does transform water to wine. He does bring um, healing to brokenness. He does bring hope to despair. And I think um, as we look at that text, the the master of the banquet said, you've saved the best till now. And, And I think that's true of the kingdom. The best is always yet to come. The best is always yet to come. Over the last few months, I've been helping out on a Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course with leaders from across the UK. We've been doing it on Zoom on a Thursday afternoon. And um, one of the things that we do, I do a one-to-one with the leaders that are in my group. Uh, We do what's called a grief and loss exercise where we uh, look back over their lives and identify places of grief and loss um, and and, and how God came to them in that and also how God might be coming to them at this particular time in terms of what they've faced in the past, maybe not dealt with. And I think I was quite taken back, really, hearing remarkable stories from these different leaders of desperate situations that they had faced. Yet God, yet God brought transformation. I was humbled by their fortitude and their perseverance as they, in many ways, had metaphorically seen God turn water into wine. And what's true for them is true for us. And over this next week, we find ourselves Thursday was ascension. And then Jesus ascends into heaven. And, uh, and, and he says to his disciples, wait. Go and wait in Jerusalem for the Spirit to come. And, and they have 10 days to wait. Well, we've already had three of them. But I, I'd encourage you, over these coming days, just to put aside time in the midst of your busy lives to stop and to wait, to be honest about where you're at, to listen for that still, small voice, to do whatever he tells you, and to allow him, by his Spirit, to bring fine wine into your lives afresh. Shall we stand? (laughs) Father, we... um, we pray for one another. We pray particularly for those who might feel like those empty jars or those jars filled just with water. We pray that, that by your spirit you would come. You'd help us to be honest, help us to wait, and then give us the courage to do what you're telling us to do. We pray that we, as your people, might experience the reality of this story about Jesus, that we might see you bring transformation to us as individuals, to our families, to our circumstances that we find ourselves in, and to the church. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.